approach the Word of God this morning, I want to just take a moment to introduce to you four questions that we're going to use as we approach this passage. And on my part in preaching, at least for the foreseeable future, every time we come to the Word, or I have the opportunity to come to the Word of God in front of you like this, I'm going to be using these four questions to frame our exploration of Scripture. Now, if you've been journeying with us through the Gospels for the last two and a half years, the last two questions on this list are already familiar to you. But I want to introduce to you two other questions to begin with at the beginning. The first question is actually three questions that I snuck into one question, but I made it one. <laughs> All right. So the first question we want to ask, I think, when we approach any passage of Scripture, I hope the reason I'm doing this is because I want to hopefully teach you or help you approach your own reading of Scripture and what are some good questions that you should be asking as you approach the text. The first question we should always ask is, who is God? What is he like, and what has he done? Who is God? You know, back in the day, some, this may go over some of your heads, but there was a, a Christian music group that had this song that described the Bible as basic instructions before leaving earth. Get it? Bible, get it? Yeah, Bible, get it? Basic instructions before leaving earth. You get it? <laughs> move on, move on. Yeah, and, and or you'll hear people say, you'll hear people say, you know, that the word of God is our instruction manual for living. I understand what is trying to be communicated there, but the Bible is so much more, friends, than just an instruction manual. It's so much more than just a rule book. Some people see it that way. The primary function of the word of God is to reveal to us God. All of the stories and even the commands, everything that this book contains, its primary function is to reveal to us who God is, what is he like, and what has he done. So we always want to receive this first and understand this. And then when we get a revelation of who God is, something very often happens very quickly. We realize who we are. We see ourselves best in light of who God is. So our question is, who am I? In light of this revelation that God has given me in his word, what does God being this mean for me in my life? And then the second two questions some of you are probably more familiar with are questions of application. All right, so knowing this, that God is who he has revealed himself to be, and I am this in light of that revelation, then what is God saying to me, and what am I going to do about it? Because it does no good to get a revelation of who God is and not take it to a point of application and action. The word of God goes deep into our lives by doing it. Amen, church? not just by filling our heads with information, but by allowing his word to transform us. Now today, with today's passage, I'm going to let you, as you leave here today, handle questions three and four. And what is God saying to me? What, I'm, what, what am I going to do about it? I'm hoping that you leave from here pondering those two questions. And where I want to spend most of our time today is out of this passage, a familiar parable, who is God and who am I in light of who God is? All right, so if you were here last week, Christine Skull uh, introduced us to Luke chapter 15, the first half of it, and she preached on these two parables, the parable of the lost coin and the parable of the lost sheep. Today, we're going to talk about the parable of the lost son. And just to remind you, the context of Jesus launching into these three stories is that he has been seen by religious leaders eating with quote-unquote sinners. And the religious leaders of his day are once again criticizing the kind of company that he is choosing 
to keep. They're discrediting his authority and his, um, uh, his reputation by criticizing the company that he is in. And of course, probably most of us in this room know that for the religious leaders of Jesus' day to be criticizing Jesus, spending time with sinners, means that some kind of breakdown in religion is happening. Um, I used that terminology two weeks ago on another teaching of Jesus. It's to say that something is missing the mark. When religion, even if it's teaching true doctrines, fails to meet and embrace lost people, something is wrong because as Christine beautifully taught us last week, God has set his heart on lost people, right? In these parables, we see that, that God has set his very heart on people who have strayed away, on people who have rebelled, on people who are ignorant. And he tells these stories to reveal to us, first and foremost, something about who he is, that his heart is set for lost people. And Christine reminded us, that this is great news for us, church. It's not just great news for the people out there. It's great news for those of us in this room because it means that God is seeking out our own lostness, our own brokenness, our own sinfulness, and seeking to forgive and to restore. So we'll pick up Jesus' teaching here with the parable of the lost son, which is the longest parable in Luke chapter 15. As is often our custom, I'll ask you to stand to your feet as we read together, it will be on the screen behind me. We'll begin in verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the youngest son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything. There was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here am I starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. 
But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. You can take your seat. This parable is really a story about a father who loves both of his sons, as we will see. You're probably familiar with this story as we just read it. This son, the second born, comes to his father, demands his share of the inheritance. To do that in the culture of Jesus' day, while your father was still living, was basically uh, the deepest kind of insult. It was to wish a death wish towards your own father. So he does this. He takes his part of the estate. He runs off, squanders it on wild living. We know at least that meant prostitutes. Could have meant other things as well. But he's living wild, spends all of his money. Famine hits the land, and he ends up finding a job working in a pig pen, which is abhorrent for a number of reasons. First of all, this is an unclean animal in Jewish society. So this is the lowest low kind of job that a person can have. Plus, yesterday, my family went to a farm, a pumpkin patch, apple orchard, and they had a pig pen. Have you, have you all smelled a pig pen? It is horrific, all right? It's enough, it's enough to keep you from eating bacon at least for a couple weeks <laughs> until you put it out of your mind, right? And terrible, terrible, terrible. So he's working the lowest of the low kind of job. And then he comes to his senses. He says, you know what? My father's servants have it better than I have it. I'm going to run back. And then we see this beautiful picture of the father's heart unfold in this story as Christine told us last week, the shepherd and the woman and now the father in these stories are all revealing to us something of the father's heart. And so he finds that his father is waiting for him to return. And he sees his son far off in the distance, runs to him. This is an undignified action. You know, the owners of estates didn't run. But this guy runs, loses his dignity to go to his son. His son falls on his face and says, don't even consider me a son, just let me be a servant. The father doesn't even answer that, but just says, quick, let's get you back into the family. Where's a robe and a ring, and let's uh, have a party for you. We're going to kill the fattened calf. And then we get to this part about the older brother, which is an epilogue to the story of the lost son. But I would argue that all of what Jesus is teaching in these parables in the lost sheep, the lost coin, and now the lost son, is building up to this epilogue about the older brother and his attitude. This is the main point of the whole of Luke chapter 15. Why? Because Jesus is responding to a criticism that's coming from religious leaders about why he is hanging out with sinners, and he is letting them know your attitude towards what I'm doing, your attitude towards these quote-unquote sinners is just like the older brother in this story. And, and you can be sure the Pharisees understood what he was getting at. They understood the point that he was making by the end of this. So it's the older son. We talk a lot about the lost son, which is a beautiful part of the story, but it's really the older son that's the main point of this passage. So I put these four questions before you. First of all, who is God? What is he like? What has he done? Well, in really all three of these parables, when we see it especially here in the parable of the lost son, we see a number of things that are true about God. And I'm sure I can make the list longer, but I just want to point out a few things for you from this passage. First of all, to reiterate what Christine told us last week, that God has his heart 
set on lost people, that he is looking, waiting, searching, that God is seeking people to find them. Second, that he forgives the rebel. This son, unlike the sheep and the coin, is a rebel. He has done more than just wander off or get lost. He has wished death upon his own father. He has become his father's enemy and rebelled in the worst kind of most offensive way. And we see the father just offering forgiveness even though he has rebelled. Now listen, that would be enough. If all God offered us was forgiveness, we'd still have reason to gather every week in a room like this and sing praises to him. But the father in this story does more than just forgive. He also accepts. Those are two different things. Just because you have forgiven someone doesn't mean that you need to accept them, right? They're two different actions. And the father chooses not only to forgive, to cancel the debts of this son of his, but also to accept him. He embraces him. And then we see this other characteristic of God, that God is generous even to this Rebel sinner, this father says, here's my robe, here's a ring, we're going to throw a party for you, I'm going to give you what I have out of my love for you. And in the story of the lost son especially, we see that all of this is by the sheer grace of the father in the story. This son is beyond the point of being able to earn these things from his dad. He's beyond the point of being able to earn forgiveness or to earn acceptance or or to receive generosity. He can't do these things on his own. And just like the sheep who needs a rescuer and the coin who needs someone to find it, this son has someone in the story, a father, who's willing just out of his grace, just out of his love, to forgive, to seek and to forgive and accept and give generously to his son. Now, if that's who God is, then who am I? in light of who God is. Well, if I'm in Christ and God is seeking and forgiving and accepting and generous, then it means that I am found, forgiven, accepted, and rich, right? It means that I am all of those things because of who God is. If God is seeking, then I'm the one who's found. It's my identity. If God is forgiving, then I'm the one who's forgiven. If God is accepting, then I'm the one who gets to be accepted. If God is being generous, then it means that I get to be rich and not in the cheap definition of that word that is only based in material goods, but is based on something that is true about us, a richness that is true about us, whether we are poor and rich or rich in our bank accounts. I am found, forgiven, accepted, and rich. Now, follow me. At this point in the sermon, I bet there's people thinking in this room, especially if you know the word of God, especially if you've been in church for a long time, especially if you've been doing church things for a while, you may be thinking, Joel, that is wonderful, but tell us something deep and something new because this is what we already know. This is like theology 101. This is like really basic stuff. And you'd be right, it is really basic. Many of us in this room are familiar with this story and we're familiar with the truths that I'm saying, that God seeks us and forgives us and accepts us and is generous to us. But here's my challenging question to, to us this morning. If our identity is found because God is seeking, I am found, then why is it that there's so many of us who don't know our, our identity? 
Why is it that there are so many of us who live wandering from circumstance to circumstance, from person to person, hoping that somebody will tell us who we are because we're not sure who we are? If we're forgiven, then why do so many of us walk around in so much shame, holding secrets? Why is it that some of us probably in this room have taken oaths to ourselves and said, I will never tell anyone what I did? I will never share with anyone this sin in my life. And why, if we are the forgiven, are we so very often short on forgiveness when we're called upon to give it to other people? If we are accepted, then why are we so thirsty for the acceptance of other people? If we're accepted, then why do we live so much of our lives in the lens of our phone cameras and social media accounts and the opinions of other people, the opinions of our supervisors at work? Why do we spend so much time just trying to get someone to notice us, to invite us, to bring us in? And if we are rich, then why do we use the language of poverty? day in and day out, to describe our lives. You know, there's an odd thing, just an observation I've noticed, that very, very often, the more we have, the more we use the language of poverty to describe our lives. Why is that? What is that? Where the more we have, we start incorporating into our language not enough, more and more and more. And it begins right in the morning. I didn't have enough sleep, and I'm not going to have enough time today. And I'm not going to be able to connect with everyone that I need to connect with. And I'm not going to have enough energy. And I'm not going to have enough money to pay the bills. It's a language of poverty. And many of us use it to describe our existence day in and day out. So you see, we may know doctrinally, theologically, that we are found forgiven, accepted, and rich. But the proof is not in what we believe in our minds. The proof is how we live with our lives and how we speak with our mouths. That's where we see what we really believe. You are operating from the belief system that your life and day-to-day speech say about you, not from some doctrinal statement that's posted on the website of the Christian Missionary Alliance, right? The doctrinal statement you're living from is the one you tell people day in and day out every day without even thinking about it. Our actions tell the real story. And one of the best ways that our actions tell us what we really believe about the Father's heart is our attitude toward other people, which is why Jesus adds this part on to the end of the story about the older brother. See, the older brother has turned his relationship with the Father into one of transaction instead of grace. The older brother has turned his story about what he has done instead of about what the father has done. He protests to his father, do you know what I've done for you? Do you realize how much time I've given to you, how I have slaved, how I have been obedient? It is so easy to do this in religion, friends, to turn the things that we do for God into payment, into transaction, and we expect to get something back. You know what surfaces surfaces this the quickest in people is suffering. Very religious people who obey the rules, who do the right thing. When suffering hits their life, very often, I've seen this, it's like they lose their faith. It's like religion's not working anymore. 
It's like I did all this stuff and God's not getting it because he's not honoring me back. I paid him and I deserve a party too. And friends, I can tell you, if you think God should throw you a party, I promise you, you think everyone else in your life should throw you a party too. Amen? See, if you think God owes you a party, you will believe that your spouse owes you a party too. You will believe that your boss owes you a party. You will believe that your church owes you a party, that your kids owe you a party, that in all of these places, you deserve to be the center of everyone's celebratory attention. If you think that's what God owes you, you will think that about the other relationships in your life too. But here's how the father responds to his son who's complaining. He says, I love this in verse 31. He says to his son, it's a statement of love to his good behaving son. He says, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. He's saying to his son, there's no inequality here. See, he's telling his son, look, you can see it clear because in your younger brother because he went off and was living crazy and he came back and now I'm giving him this party so you can see my grace. But he's telling the older son, don't think that I relate to you any differently, even though you have been the obedient one. He's saying, don't get it mixed up. Don't think that you, because you worked in my fields, don't think that because you obeyed my commands, don't think that because you respected to me that I'm loving you because you did those things. Because you see, if you didn't do them, if you rebelled, if you ran away, I would celebrate just the same if you came back too. The father is saying to the older brother, if you want to see my heart, look at your younger brother. See, this has nothing to do about you being able to match up. This has nothing to do with about you being able to hit some kind of standard. I'm just giving this to you. I've given you everything. I haven't hold, held anything back, the father is saying, from you, older brother, or from you, younger brother. See, it's very easy. Listen, I bet in this room there's some rebels, and God bless you. I'm so glad you're here. In this room, I bet there's some rebels, and I bet in this room there's some decent folk too, some religious people, some moral people, you know, somewhere in life, people just taught you right from wrong. And generally speaking, you're able to operate with a moral compass and make good decisions. But if that's you, you are especially in danger of forgetting about the grace of God. You're especially in danger of forgetting that this is all about grace. That it's not about you living a good, moral, decent life. Now listen, you should rejoice if, if someone taught you right from wrong and you lived out of that. You've been spared a lot of pain in life. You have. So there's nothing to be ashamed about in that. But it's not payment for God to owe you something. See, it's very easy for us to start thinking that God sought us because we were so amazing. Or that we're forgiven and accepted because we did the right stuff. Or that we're rich because we're getting paid. We turn prayer into a transactional thing. God, you owe me. Because I've lived in this way, in X, Y, and Z. And one of the clearest ways, if you want a telltale sign in your life that you are not walking in the grace that God gives, it's this. It's on our terrible attitude toward other people. 
I had the opportunity a little while ago to spend time with a guy who was going through some hard things. And he was one of those good, moral, decent folks. He had made a lot of good decisions in his life, generally responsible, put together, so on and so forth. But when suffering hit his life, it's like his theology fell apart because it didn't fit the paradigm of I'm living in this way so that I get something from God. So all of a sudden, God wasn't working for him anymore. And so in the midst of his despair, I went and spent some time with him, and he, at one point in the conversation, began to list off for me everyone who had done him wrong. It's very easy, friends, for us to start living very entitled lives. And so he starts listing off everyone who's wronged him. Of course, he started with his wife told me where she was missing the mark. And then he moved on to his coworkers. And then he told me about how his boss didn't appreciate him. And then, sure enough, he told me how in his church there were a bunch of hypocrites. He said, Pastor, you won't believe the hypocrites in my church. There were sinners in his church. Have you ever heard of such a church? And so, and so he says, there's messed up people in my church. And then it moved on to his neighbors and then it moved on to the government. And then he's criticizing the president and so on and so forth. And friends, I've just learned, this is something I've just learned over time, that when I hear people give me a narrative of how everybody has done them wrong, how nobody has thrown them a party, even though they deserve it, immediately, it didn't used to be this way for me, but immediately my mind tells me that they are living under incredible pressure to perform for the love of God and for the love of other people. And I have learned to take the conversation to the place where we can start to deal with that and own it. At one point, at the end of this conversation, he says to me, he says, Joel, um, he said, I have obeyed God's law. This is the attitude of the Pharisees. He says, I have obeyed God's law. And he said, I don't understand why other people can't do the right thing. It's not that hard to do the right thing. And I said to him, friend, it's impossibly hard to live up to God's law. Impossibly hard. If anybody in this room thinks that they are living up to God's law, wake up call. You know what you've done, friends? You have taken God's law, which is impossibly high to meet, and you have lowered it down to here where you can reach it. And it is probably at a higher place than a lot of people in your life. It's probably higher than the people you criticize on the news. It's probably higher than the people you criticize in other neighborhoods and other towns. But you have lowered the bar to here. And you've probably been pretty bad at meeting your own standards, which has taught you to then begin to lie to yourself and to other people, to overlook certain things, to make exceptions for yourself, all while not making exceptions for other people at all lowered the bar. See, here's the truth about the heart of the Father, friends, as I close. <laughs> the worship team could come up. Here's the truth about the heart of the Father for you. You ready for this? God does throw a party for you. And it's not because you deserve it at all. You know, what if we saw everything that we get from God because of the cross, only a handful of which I've described to you this morning, what if we started to see that as the extravagant overflow of God's love, a party 
for us. It's, it makes no sense that the father in this story, who is clearly the wronged party, clearly the one in the right, should throw the party for the rebel. But he does. Listen, if you're here and you're a rebel this morning, the story of the lost son ought to give you all kinds of hope. It ought to affirm you that you have a place in the kingdom. So welcome home, rebel. <laughs> welcome home. But if you are religious and moral and decent, generally you've made good decisions with your life. Generally, you've been successful as a result of those decisions. Then you need to hear this. God loves you so much that he will not let you live in this state where you think that the story is about you. He wants you to know, friends, that the story has been, is, and always will be about him. And he will find a way to get you to realize that it's grace. I've seen God do it in a number of ways. One is that he will expose your secret sin. I tell people all the time, if you're getting exposed by the love of the Father, it's just that. It's the love of the Father. If you got caught in sin, praise the Lord. If you weren't able to project that image to people anymore, praise God, because that image was a wall between you and the love of the Father. See? He wants that wall to come down. I've also seen the Lord do this. I've seen him just encounter people with the Holy Spirit in such a way that it humbles and even embarrasses them a little bit. There's scriptural precedent for this in the Old Testament. Think about Saul and Nebuchadnezzar, powerful, prideful men who both got encountered by his Holy Spirit to humiliate them and attempt to try to get to their heart. I've noticed this sometimes in religious folks that the worst thing that could ever happen to them is that the Holy Spirit would encounter them in a way that would embarrass them or give them some manifestation that they do not want. But that may be something that God wants to do to humble you. You can trust him in it. Or suffering. Nothing like suffering to reveal our bad theology, our poor attitudes toward God and others, our graceless living. God will often allow suffering so that we contact the gospel for the first time, maybe in our religious lives. Or God will do this. It's what happened in this story. He will send a rebel into your life. He will send a rebel into your church. He will send a rebel into your family, your workplace, and you will feel frustration rise up in you as they get everything that you got, even though you followed the rules and they didn't. And if that attitude surfaces in you, it just shows that God is wanting to encounter you with his grace. It's why the church needs rebels. See, the church, when it gets religious and stiff, when we have forgotten about the grace of God, one of the first things God will do in revival is send prophets to us who I have referred to so far in this sermon as rebels. And in their lives, in the messiness, in the hopelessness, when it seems like nothing will get put back together, we are reminded, whether we were religious or not, that this is all about God's grace anyway, from beginning to end. And we all get the stuff from God just because of his love for us. 
It's the gospel, friends. Isn't that cool? Can we just put our hands together for Jesus? You'd stand to your feet. I'm going to ask Steve to come and minister.